So today is the observance day to see some guests come from neighboring farms. Um, next next deposita day is Kalpansa, right? It's the entering of Vasa, the beginning of our range retreat, which is a, a tradition coming from the Pali Vinaya, and it marks the the time where the, the Sangha gathers together during the monsoon season in India and Thailand. So our we call it the Rains Residence in Vasa. And uh, David will be taking the Anagarga precepts in that evening after the evening uh, meditation. So that's nice. Always inspiring to see someone interested in the holy life and taking on the commitment to practice with us. And we have a very good... Uh, community, bhikkhus and lay people helping us and a very good supporting community so all the conditions are excellent for practice and for that we can be truly grateful and we can celebrate that I suppose say celebrate and this kind of a environment is quite rare to have the opportunity to not be involved in the news cycles in the economic woes of the planet or the environmental woes, although we're affected by that somehow. And we have, a, we have a space where the urgencies of our culture, the urgencies of our economics and politics are, are laid aside and we can come and be more reflective, more contemplative, considering the, the Buddhist teachings and uh, remembering why we've we've taken up the holy life, the spiritual life, why we are engaged in this kind of uh, lifestyle and this kind of aspiration. And that reflective capacity that we have is, is very special and it's a very human quality, the capacity to not only think but to know your thinking, the capacity to feel pain but to also know you're feeling pain, the capacity to feel upset and to know you feel upset, the capacity to be inspired and know you are inspired. That reflective capacity is really what makes us human beings rather than just uh, reactive Ottomans that are subject to the whims of any emotion or any sense input that comes at us. I was recently talking with someone who has uh, the beginnings of Alzheimer's and just watching your face and know the person quite well for quite a long time and just watching a reflective mind isn't there much anymore you see the mind the person's eyes just go into some kind of private pondering which probably has very little to do with this room I said whoa often as monks we ask ourselves so what will happen when I get Alzheimer's if I get dementia what happens to the reflective mind we don't know but while we have it let's use it this is very important when we have good health. And I found that recently. People, and Jim Roy has, has uh, died recently. He was a good friend and 
And there's a lady I'm visiting in uh, Ottawa. She's she's going through a rough time, and and when these Devadutas, heavenly messengers of, of old age, sickness, and death, come uh, come knocking on the door, you can see people who haven't really engaged in in reflective practices and in contemplating and being aware of how the mind moves and that that space of non-attachment if they haven't cultivated that reflective that it's pretty hard to do it when the when the chips are down pretty hard to do when when there's a lot of pressure or a lot of stuff coming at you because then the mind's just very reactive into kind of a survival mode so trying to create a, a monastic space that is welcoming to monastics and lay people where where we don't have the pressure like I'm doing, I'm doing, trying to learn how to make furniture. And if I had to earn a living making furniture, I'd starve. <laughs> it is very slow and very, it's a reflective process for me. It's not a, a production. Because of the generosity of the lay people, the kindness of, of many people, and, and a tradition which carries this ethos, a tradition that we that comes to us from the Buddha, from Lopo Cha, from Lopo Sumedho, the forest tradition. And we have this good karma to uh, come together in a, a moral way, in a way we're not on each other's case, we're not pressured into deadlines and all those things that, that make worldly life quite, quite, quite challenging. So um, we can to reflect on the goodness of our, of our lives in that way. Reflective capacity is something that we we are trying to engage all the time, make it very strong and make it very vibrant in the mind. And I remember once giving a talk in, in Ottawa, and I just kind of assumed that everyone's reflective. And one of the lay meditation teachers says, you know, not everyone's reflective. People just believe in their emotions, believe in their thoughts, believe in the news cycles or whatever. And I just sort of take it for granted. Eh, you don't believe in your emotions, do you? <laughs> you don't believe in your storylines, do you really? And yet, surely, I mean, I get caught in a few storylines, and, and I certainly did more in the past. So this capacity to know Dharma rather than to just be a victim of the stuff that comes through the stream of consciousness, this uh, wonderful, wonderful human capacity needs to be uh, maintained and, and seeing that that, that reflective capacity is 24-7. It's not, it's not a Zafu experience. And then to bring that reflective capacity into everything we do, whether it's planting garlics or making furniture or being the head cook or shifting rocks or meditating, that practice of reflection is paramount in, in understanding Buddhism. Which is not a belief, is it? It's not, you, don't, you don't believe in Buddhism. You use that reflective capacity. So we have that. We have a teaching. And we're given a teaching which, which offers us a, a very pragmatic way of liberating the heart from suffering. We're offered a vision of a goal, the Buddha's enlightenment, the unconditioned, the uncreated, and originated, the unborn, the peace, deathless, the island. We're offered a, a, a kind of pathway to realize that. So we have this reflective capacity and we have a teaching and we imbibe the teaching through talks and reading and talking 
with each other. And then our, our task is to sustain the reflective capacity and apply the principles that this teaching is offering us to free the mind from suffering. Very simple. So we study, we talk, we read. But not just for the sake of knowledge, is it? You don't really have to study that much. Not for the sake of accumulating knowledge, but rather for the sake of informing the mind how to reflect, on what to reflect on. So when we work in the monastery or at home, wherever, say, like, I find... I'm tr- I do. I like to do craft, as you know, and I'm, I like to take something up that's difficult for me, and and that's really uh, kind of kind of raises my game. I, can, I guess you say. So I'm just trying to do some furniture in a workshop. It was a beautiful workshop, and and I'm not a natural. I'm just stubborn. <laughs> I just I'm just persistent and stubborn. But within the the making of these bits, putting these bits of wood together. What comes up are all, are all manner of both skillful and unskillful traits of character. So one of the character traits that I have that I, I thought, you know, working in a workshop would be very, very good to develop this, that, that, that sense that I think we all have is just trying to get something finished, trying to get it done, especially with our, our weird schedule where, you know, quarter past 11, that's it. Bell rings and... So then doing something, it's 11 o'clock, I want to get it done. And just looking at, reflecting on that state of mind as a practice and seeing it day in and day out, day in and day out, seeing it arise and seeing, working with that to become more mindful, more centered, and to practice non-grasping. Non-grasping is really the essence of freedom and understanding that is very, very important. Non-grasping of the khandhas, non-grasping of the emotions, of the thoughts, of the body, in all the ways that that happens. And how to do that? Then one of the ways that I do it, non-grasping, is I, I ask myself questions without having, without the thought that I need an objective answer. I ask questions like, what's unconditioned? What's not hot? And these, these are questions which are not seeking an objective answer. What's not hot? And you start, because when you want an objective answer, you look for something. But a question, well-placed, without the need for an objective answer, brings you to clarity. It can bring you to this kind of clarity, because the mind is not furnished with an answer. So like, so what's unconditioned here? To allow the mind to be in that clarity, you have to let go of the answer. What's unconditioned? So if you if you hear the sound, uh, you feel the heat in the body, that's all conditioned. What's unconditioned? Thought. You start to think that's conditioned. So that, if you take something like that, it constantly brings your mind to clear presence. And then to, to take that kind of a clear presence into the work that you do is a way of practicing non-grasping within the world of doing. Sometimes we think that non-grasping is like rejecting, no? Or that non-grasping is only done through some high states of, of uh, meditative attainment, but actually, no, non-grasping is always possible. And there's, when there's this clear knowing, this clarity of presence without a sense of self getting engaged and trying to get something, get rid of something. So what is not conditioned? If you don't look for an answer, what happens to your mind? My mind goes silent. 
That's not conditioned. There's no answer. And in the no answer, you have clarity. I was, uh, I was telling when I came, I was uh, in the workshop looking for a, I had two uh, wing nuts of different sizes, which were little treasures because I needed wing nuts. And I was making a plate for a, a jig, and, uh, and then I needed the bolts for the wing nuts. So we got one of these awful baskets of odd bolts. And I, that is one of the worst things for me, trying to find an odd bolt in a mixed basket. I hate it. No, I don't hate it, but I get very restless because I want to get the bolt so that I can fit the nut, so that I can put it on the jig, so that I can make this piece of wood, but use the machine I'm using. So my whole attitude is now of getting something done. And, and we do this all the time. We do this all the time. So I just, I could see myself getting frustrated in this horrible bag of bolts. And I'd say, well, what's unconditioned? And also the mind has clarity. And then, and then I found one. <laughs> and then I need a second one, and I have a different, different size of wing nut. Rummage, rummage, rummage. And what's unconditioned? And I found a second one. <laughs> that was really kind of neat, seeing how that clarity of mine is not passive. It's not like to live in clarity that you somehow don't do anything. You just sit on a, on a cushion. But actually, clarity is always possible. Uh, it's always possible. And if you think about it, if, if the Buddhist realization is unconditioned, is the unconditioned, uncreated, unoriginated, unformed, then if, if you do meditation and you have some experience which makes you feel good, and then the rest of life, in all its doings, is, is somehow opposed to that, or somehow not that, and you, you start to think, I need to do meditation in order to get a state of mind, is that state of mind not, still not conditioned? It's not, it shouldn't clarity be there all the time? And certainly meditation can be in an environment which helps you to remember that clarity because it's not complicated. It's not, there isn't a lot of sense impingement. But if our meditation is a, is a construct through control, through holding an object, and then we are dependent on meditation for that experience, is that right? Is that unconditioned? Or is that just another refined condition that I have cultivated and that I want to get and as soon as I want to get something, then that which is not the something I want, I reject that and I'm in conflict. Whereas clarity is never in conflict with the way things are. Because clarity is not a sense experience. What is unconditioned? When I, when I say that to myself, what is unconditioned? I still, I still know the conditions. There's still presence to them. If I start to look for the unconditioned, then that very looking for something is already a condition, and I'm lost in a search for objects. But this clarity of mind, it's not an object, is it? Like, what is unconditioned? Like, if you have a pain in the hip or knee right now, 
What is not pain? So we tend to focus very much on objects, which we have to. Painful objects we really focus on because we want to get rid of them. We get caught in emotional habits of worry or distraction or whatever. And that's all attachment to the stream of consciousness, to the khandhas. But in any given moment, there is a practice of letting go. And how do you do that? How do you, how do you let go of something? You don't re-engage with it through analysis. That's not letting go. You don't, you don't just kind of always get obsessed with it. And that's the, the mind which is always obsessed with objects. But clarity of mind. So if you're worried, what is not worry? And your mind goes into the silence of not-self, the silence of non-grasping, the silence of emptiness. Because when I say, what is, what is not conditioned? And you come to that pure listening. There's no person in that, is it? There's consciousness. What is not? And Buddhism uses a lot of the kind of negative language to take your mind to that clarity very instantly. Non-becoming. Non-resistance. So if I'm resisting something, a, a person's voice, uh, some pain, um, some work I have to do, some ritual that, that I'm involved in, or something I'm resisting it, I throw up non-resistance. And then resistance is known as an object, rather than me being caught in it through attachment, non-resistance, non-becoming. Non-becoming. And this is, a, this is using language through samasankapa, right aspiration, or right thought. Language is important, but most, much of our language is just taken up with self-views, storylines, scenarios, worries. Now, some of it is necessary, functional thinking, but most of it isn't. So to actually use, use language from right understanding and interject it into, into your conscious experience in ways which constantly brighten the mind, awaken the mind to the habits of attachment. So for me in the workshop... This is a very good exercise of this sort of... Like sometimes I'll do something, I'll have a good day's work, and I'll want to finish it off, and I'll, you know, I've got 10% left of that job to do, and I blow it. <laughs> because I want to get it done. And, and, and that habit is very, very strong. So now, it's an opportunity, isn't it, for me? Okay, that's, that's how attachment takes place in the world of work. Why don't I use that to develop the capacity of non-grasping. And that's actually very calming throughout the day because that particular habit will come up in all manner of ways. But if I deal with it consciously because it's a conscious experience now, I don't have pressure and so on, I can, I can really work with it and observe it. I can see it arising and, oh, what's, what's not rushing? And the mind lets go and then the mind picks it up and gets what's non-rushing. So I'm still working and I'm still doing what I have to do, but now I'm really taking responsibility for the mind in a myriad of ways and saying, well, that's still grasping, and that doesn't give a peaceful result. And so I, I apply something very simple, and it's this, this application of, of, of mind to one's daily life, which has to be very persistent. You can't just believe in Buddhism or have a kind of, yeah, I like that 
you know, like just being inspired by a teacher is is really a big deal. That's easy, right? But actually to be inspired or informed by your own insights and then to carry them through to really like any insight we have is is significant because it's about our mind and, and the way our minds are are grasping whatever we're grasping and we're caught up with. So they're significant, you know, they're not, not, not to be dismissed. They're to be remembered. And they're to be remembered in what way? Through right thought. Because when you see something about yourself, which really shows you how you suffer and how your particular mode of attachment creates uh, consequences which are not good for you or your, your social environment, uh, and you see that, and you see that clearly, then that's an insight. That's a healthy understanding of, of the conditioning of your mind, and that's, that's really wholesome, it's good. So then how do you carry through that insight in a sustained way? In a sustained way, well, you have to, you have to re- remember, well, that's important. Then you have to have a strategy. A strategy of, no, okay, I want to I really work with that. So that's samasankapa, right thought. You have the insight, right understanding. Samasaka, right, right, right thought. Okay, how, where's the attachment? What can I do now to liberate attention from that? So I'm in the workshop and I know that's a habit. And so I started to say, well, what if I try that? Then what's not, what's unconditioned? And also the mind's not grasping. The habit's there, it wants to go. Then what's unconditioned? And then after a while the mind's very peaceful, but the work is getting done. It's not like the work isn't getting done. It's getting done actually much better. Much, much better. And this is very much Ajahn Chah's sort of, and Ajahn Sumedho's way of really bringing the reflective mind into just the very ordinary things of life. And reflection isn't just, it's not self-analysis. It's not like you're thinking about yourself. It's rather you're seeing the flow of consciousness and finding that place of clarity and precision which can can be with that and respond in the right way and not just be be reactive. It's quite wonderful, really. It's quite a a kind of marvelous capacity we have. And you can see that's not a belief. It's It's not a position that we're taking. The pure-hearted one, by not by not holding to fixed views, is not born again in, into this world. It's not like a, a viewpoint that you just hold on to. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a doing. It's a constant doing. So we all have conditioning, right? Uh, our minds produce things. But we also all have this capacity to, to come to this clarity constantly. Like sometimes, you know, people will they'll meditate for five or six days and they'll have some peaceful states of mind and like do a self-retreat here and then come back and into the community and then the piece of the self-retreat is quite often just um, sense deprivation that's all you just, just didn't get stimulated uh, so it's nice it's nice and, and then but the, the capacity to reflect is not dependent on sense deprivation Sense of vision can be good, you know, you can really get refined uh, understanding of the mind, but, but we're, not, we're not trying to run away from sense experience. We are monitoring it and we are limiting 
uh, access to computers and so on. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we're, we're trying to help each other, but not to see, not to see uh, clarity as a state of mind, like, like that you've produced and you've manufactured and that you have to create, but rather to see it as something that's always available. Yesterday I was talking to the lay folk about opportunity costs. I was just saying if we want, if we've got, if the monastery has ten thousand dollars, and we want to build something. We can build uh, another kuti, or we can build some more showers for lay people. Let's say that's something that we're considering. But by building the another kuti, we lose the opportunity to make showers for lay people. By making another shower for lay people, we lose the opportunity to build a kuti. Right? Opportunity costs. Well, when our minds are preoccupied with sense experience in a way which is not clear. And by preoccupied, I do mean there is no reflective capacity going on. So when I'm constantly preoccupied with objects or thoughts or pain or worry or all that, there is no opportunity for realizing the deathless. The opportunity is lost because the mind is preoccupied with the khandhas. As long as the mind is preoccupied with the khandhas, that's you're stuck. You're stuck with the khandhas. But this does working in the world and being a human being and doing all that does that imply preoccupation? No, you don't have to. Be, you don't have to be preoccupied to have a shower. You can be reflective, have a shower. You don't have to be rushing to get the shower done in order to do another thing. You know, that's preoccupation. So when I'm working in the workshop and I'm and I'm rushing to get this thing done because the the lunch bell is on and uh, I've got a guest to meet or whatever. That's usually what it is, something like that. And I want to get it finished. That's preoccupation. I'm no longer mindful, I'm no longer present to the way things are. But as soon as I notice that, I say, what's unconditioned or whatever way I want to do that, then I'm still occupied in the khandhas. I'm still doing what I do, but I'm not preoccupied in a way of attachment. And what does that do? It creates a kind of both, it creates a good effect, it's a good result in the work, but more importantly, the mind then begins to abide in, in the silence of emptiness, in the silence of not-self, in the silence of non-grasping, in the silence of non-becoming, in the ease of being, all those different ways that we talk about it, and the mind's available. And that way of reflection is something that should inform our lives 24-7, even in our dreams. Even in our dreams, you find that the reflective mind begins to operate. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. <laughs> Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.